Hi, this is Chris from Lansing, Michigan. Dusted is a Story Wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. Hi everyone and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. This is Dusted and Gloria is in no way prettier than me. Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> okay, Gloria can be prettier than me, but you're still number one with a bullet. Thank this week much. we're watching episode 13 of season 5 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Blood Ties. Yeah, this episode aired on February 6, 2001 and is written by Stephen S. DeKnight. This is DeKnight's first episode of Buffy, but we'll see him again another 16 times between Buffy and Angel, so you should get used to hearing his name. Another 16 times? Yeah. I have to confess, if I had sat down and prepared from memory a list of all the Buffy writers, I don't think I would have got to Stephen S. tonight without the assistance of IMDb. But once you saw him, though, you would be like, oh yeah. No, I wouldn't. I would have felt bad that I'd forgotten him, (laughs) but honestly, I wouldn't have remembered in 16 episodes Mm -hmm. across the two series. That's that's an impressive achievement. And this is quite the debut episode. Yeah, it is. This episode directed by Michael Gershman. This is his fifth of ten that he'll direct for Buffy. Though, of course, he does serve as director of photography for 82 episodes yeah. of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I think it's fair to say he understands the visual language. <laughs> he certainly does. And that, I think, is ably demonstrated yeah. in this episode. Some of the interactions between the characters aren't necessarily as as crisp or as well-defined as you mm-hmm. might want them to be. Certainly not as crisp or as well-defined as you might expect them to be in the hands of a more accomplished and skilled director. But wow, this is a good-looking episode. No, I think it looks great. And it is one of those interesting episodes that seeks to advance the visual style Mm -hmm. of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I like that a lot. It clearly understands the conventions of the show, but it seems to want to do more with them Mm -hmm. than a more run-of-the-mill episode. Absolutely. There's a lot to enjoy. This is also Buffy's birthday episode. Lana, you've got a little background on the saga of Buffy's birthday. <laughs> too. Buffy's birthday usually lands around episode 12 or 13. We didn't celebrate her birthday in the first season. It was a half season, so we didn't go right. there then. Uh, but we do have her in season two in Surprise, which is the 13th episode of season two. Helpless, which is the 12th episode of season three. Mm-hmm. A New Man, the one where uh, Giles turns into the Fjarl demon, yes. which is always really fun. That was <laughs> (laughs) the 12th episode of season four and older and far away skipping ahead to season six but it's the 14th episode of season six yeah a little later in season six we're gonna have some stuff to deal with at the beginning of season six that i think pushes we have a two-parter that that airs in one night so that kind of shifts the rest of the season up a little bit we'll say no more about season six for now not looking at that list though i kind of wish that we'd played buffy's birthday last week in checkpoint now Mm -hmm. checkpoint was a stuffed episode but honestly, we just need a little lip service to Buffy's birthday. It would have been great to to bring back that helpless mm-hmm. connection from season three. Yeah, absolutely. Because here I feel that Buffy's birthday is, it's observed, but it's lost a little bit in the shuffle. Right. This is This episode is more things happen and it also happens to be Buffy's birthday yes. instead of it's Buffy's birthday and something interrupts or something terrible happens in that moment during her party or during her celebration or whatever. So This is also one of the most Monster of the Week light episodes yeah. that we've had from Buffy in a good long while. This 
is really starting to feel like a serialized story mm-hmm. at this point. You couldn't come into this episode without prior knowledge of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, without prior knowledge of this season, honestly, without prior knowledge of the last few episodes. Yeah. You couldn't come into this episode and make really any sense of it at all. The reveals in this episode are played very much to the attentive, long-term mm-hmm. Buffy audience. And God, I just love that. I do I too. I just love, now that this show is really finding its its confidence when it comes to this kind of long-form storytelling, and obviously, at the same time, the business has shifted. We're now in Buffy's fifth year. Mm-hmm. Television is a very different thing now than it was back in the first season. Mm-hmm. We're really seeing the support systems being put in place for this kind of long-form storytelling. Well, it's about at this time that we started having DVD sets. Prior to that, you could have a couple of episodes on a VHS, like, (laughs) collection where you would get, like, six or seven curated episodes from any particular season and be able to have those. Or for those people who videotaped at home, of which I was one, I had walls lined with, with, you know, the the six episodes per tape kind of a situation on VHS. Oh, I had exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you should mention that. Watching this episode, I was reminded of the Slayer anthology box sets mm-hmm. that were released, the character-themed yeah. anthology box sets that were released. I think at some point before Dusted is done, yeah. I want to take a look at each of those character anthology sets, uh-huh. figure out the underlying logic that was in play there. And figure out if we could put together maybe better character anthology sets. That, I think, might be an interesting topic because, for the series wrap-up episode yeah, when we're all done. Yeah, That's, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. We should do that. Let's move on, though. Return our focus to the episode in question and move into our beat-by-beat breakdown of Blood Ties. Previously, everyone wants the key, except Spike, who wants Buffy. Oh, and Glory is a god, though it isn't yet exactly clear what that means No spoilers, but it won't become more clear in this episode. We will get more information, but not more clarification. Yes, on on, on the terminology of God. Yes, exactly. At the Magic Box, Buffy wants to skip over her 20th birthday and focus on fighting glory. Willow is in favor of a party, but we're focusing here on the demon dimensions and on glory's insanity. Giles has figured out that she is feeding on the mental health of the fine folks of Sunnydale. Tara observes that at least vampires just kill you which isn't actually the whole story, so I feel as though someone needs to bring Tara up to speed quite (laughs) urgently. The fact that vampires don't just kill you is a pretty important part of vampire mythology, actually. (laughs) Did we make sure that she had vampire orientation? I I, I think she might have skipped that. Did we hand her the 101 packet? The Scoobies volunteer to help. Willow and Tara can do spells. Anya knows about the demon dimensions. And Giles makes a great cup of tea. One of my favorite beats in this entire episode unfolds through this opening scene without mm-hmm. any attention being drawn to it at all. Giles is just very quietly making tea. Yeah. He makes two cups. He passes one to Buffy. She doesn't comment on it. She doesn't say anything about it. She just takes it gratefully. It's such a intimate and familiar gesture between yes. two people who mm-hmm. know each other very, very well. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. I love the whole Giles and Buffy relationship. This is the point where the relationship between Giles and Buffy becomes one of my favorite things about the show. Oh, yeah. I also love the way that this entire scene looks. Mm -hmm. We've been a little unsure of our footing in the magic box, I think, of late. We We haven't really figured out how to shoot this space and really play to its strengths. Here, we're doing it. This Mm -hmm. is actually it. These are... In a way, the stock shots, the stock angles, the stock perspectives that we're going to get on the magic box for the rest of the show. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It feels 
immediately domestic, immediately comfortable. We've talked a lot about the contrast between Buffy's home mm-hmm. as a base of operations and the magic box as a base of operations over the course of the last few weeks. This for me is the first time that the magic box is feeling as comfortable and domestic and welcoming mm-hmm. as, you know, Buffy's dining room table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Buffy admits that they know where the key is, but there are good reasons for keeping it secret. She decides that it's time and tells the story, though we cut away to the Knights of Byzantium, chanting around a fire and coming under the sudden attack of Jinx and the other dreg-like demons. Mm-hmm. No drag in this episode. Oh, so sad. Sad. To, I mean, Jinx is good. Yeah. Jinx is fine if you don't have a drag. I guess I every guess. minion needs a weekend off every now and again. <laughs> you need a little R&R. The knights are effortlessly victorious, but as they're about to end the threat, finally, Glory arrives and cuts them down in moments. She picks up the last knight's sword, and we cut to credits. Mm-hmm. Strong demonstration of Glory's personal power there, Yes, I thought. And the Knights of Byzantium, I continue to be engaged by the imagery yeah. that they employ, but by the, the aesthetic, Templar by the reference. Thing. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm much less moved by their actual ongoing presence in this story. Mm-hmm. It feels weird that they're just camped out in a park outside yeah. of Sunnydale. I don't know where they are at this point, but it feels it feels like it belongs in another story. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult process to reconcile those two ideas to reconcile those two worlds and have them feel contiguous yeah that's a difficult process how successful is that for you um i have an issue with the knights of byzantium in general there is something about them their approach their the philosophy behind them that feels really dissonant with the rest of buffy right at the same time, I kind of like the role that they play narratively. I like that they're bringing another player into this that is not on Glory's side, but also not on Buffy's side, that is kind yes. of an antagonist <laughs> to both of them. And I find that really interesting and crunchy. I like the fact that they want to save the world by destroying the key, which is one way of looking at saving the world. I mean, they do sure. have like an honorable idea. So I really, really like that. I think for me, it's just this very religious kind kind of community it's this yeah it's calling two things that i think don't fit in the story especially because we have just identified glory as a god yeah there's a tangle of themes and intents yeah. i think here at the heart of this story you're right we've just identified glory as a god and that's taking place within the context of a show which has over the course of the last five years kind of gone out of its way to downplay the theological aspects of its own narrative. Right. We're not really talking about good versus evil in anything other than a you know literal incarnate sense. We're not talking cosmologically. We're not talking theologically. We kind of shy away from that. And what religious iconography there is, is generally repurposed to be the iconography of vampires and vampire slayers. Exactly. It's very secularized. We don't yes. have a sense of God, like God the way that, that Christians see God. Yes as a player in this universe at all. We don't have a sense of that. But we've called Glory a god. And let's not forget that one of the big 
like things that Christians say is glory to God, right? Mm -hmm. So when we have glory as a God, those things in the same sentence sort of bring us closer, kind of pull us closer to this like sort of Christian ideal. Now we've got this Knights of Byzantium group, yes, which is a religious order by everything that we get. They talk about God and they talk about God in a very like Christian theology right. way. While mimicking the tropes of the Knights Templar, exactly. of, of knightly orders, mm -hmm. yeah. That's complicated for me. I, I don't necessarily mind the glory side of that story. Yeah. I think that you can introduce a god, glory, you know, the When demon you're talking about god. a mythological, like, I think the problem for me is that if we're talking about Zeus-style mm -hmm. god, you know, like like a mythological-style god, that's how I see glory, you know? Right, but that's now because now of the Knights of Byzantium. But now we're mixing it with this, this other idea of this more conventionally monotheistic a Christian god, god yes. which is all-powerful and everywhere. And, you know, so... For me, it's simply the, the Knights of Byzantium in themselves draw attention to something, a, a, a term that has already lacked definition. We haven't really said she's a god like Zeus, like Hera, like the old gods of Olympus or whatever. We haven't mm -hmm. said what she is. We've called her god. We've left that term muddied. And now we're introducing a Christian theology yeah. god. We Talked Which about that weird. a little at the end of last week's episode when we discussed Checkpoint, mm -hmm. and I offered some criticism of that last beat, that yeah. it's an incomplete game changer. It is part cliffhanger. Yeah. Because it's one thing for Quentin Travers to say, she's a god. But it's quite another for us to understand what that means. The more I think about that beat, the less I like it. I am now pretty firmly frustrated by the final beat of Checkpoint. And moving into this episode... We, as I said at the beginning, you know, we offer more information, but no more clarification. Mm -hmm. It is muddied and it is inelegant. And that's okay, except that none of it feels purposeful. It doesn't feel as though we're deliberately trying to cause confusion or to create conflict around the notion of a capital G God or a lowercase g God. It doesn't feel intentional. The Knights of Byzantium serve a god that is very different from the kind of god that Glory is, which I am reading to be kind of like the Zeus of the demon dimension. Yes, certainly the Knights of Byzantium don't believe that they serve a kind of polytheistic, yeah, powerful entity, god like Glory. They clearly believe that they're a part of a more traditional monotheistic tradition. Mm -hmm. None of it feels terribly intentional and it's complicated still further by glory's actual presence in this episode mm -hmm. wherein she just feels so much less powerful than she did previously mm -hmm. if you look back at the fight that buffy had with glory in the warehouse over the monk yeah buffy's getting knocked a hundred yards across the room she's getting smashed into into steel girders it feels of a higher order well, let's not then, forget the building came down. Exactly. I mean, Glory brought the building down. This yeah. feels much more, the, the fight scene at the end of this episode feels so much more like a conventional Buffy mm -hmm. fight scene, which renders Glory, honestly, a little less impressive. A little smaller, sure. Yeah. So that's complicating still further our idea of what a god is or isn't or may be in the Buffyverse. It's just, it's it's messy. And as I've said before on the podcast, one of the criticisms that I think can be leveled fairly at Joss Whedon throughout mm -hmm. the run of Buffy is that he is theologically incomplete. Mm -hmm. He isn't schooled in theology, so he uses these terms without necessarily sufficient thought or sufficient care. Right. There's a 
cosmological fuzziness mm -hmm. to Buffy at a very basic level. The ideas of good and evil and purpose and fate and destiny, all the biggest ideas are a little a little frayed around the edges in the Buffyverse. Yeah, I think those are things that Joss Whedon honestly is less interested in doing. I think he likes oh, creating so a world where he can tell these emotional yes. stories, which is what he's really, really good at. Comprehensive cosmology, not a primary value that you'll find in the Buffyverse, or yeah. at least in the Buffy side of the Buffyverse. Mm -hmm. In the Angel side of the Buffyverse, well, we're more interested in that. Yeah, I think so. We'll talk about that later in that show's run. In the street outside the magic box, Willow and Tara are pouring colored sand on the ground, presumably violating all kinds of local ordinances, all part of a warning spell that will alert them to Glory's presence. Dawn asks to join in, but they hesitate. She goes into the magic box as the witches complete the spell. Inside, Xander and Anya are less than casual, though Buffy and Giles are pretty much the same as always. Dawn is curious about Glory, but Buffy is playing it cool. She isn't as tough or powerful or pretty as Dawn thinks she is. Glory, meanwhile, is singing a verse of her favorite song, Where is her key? The surviving knight of Byzantium is stalwart, even as Glory tries to seduce him out of his pious ways and then drains his brain. And I was a little confused by this beat because she seems to be leading up to torture for information. Yes. And then she drains his brain. Mm -hmm. Then she robs him of his sanity. And it doesn't seem as though she gets anything out of that process other than the mystical restoration of her own sanity. She doesn't get yeah. information. Mm -hmm. So she did just kill the last guy who might have a clue as to the locations of the key. Well, I think that she pretty much figured he didn't have any more information for her. And so she used him in the only way that he was useful. I mean, that was kind of the way that I read that. I'm still less than sure about Glory's moment to moment motivation. Yeah. And so much of it seems to be focused on the episode conflict rather than the season long conflict. Well, and rather than what she genuinely may or may not do in that moment, it seems yeah. like she just exists to be the bad guy. We're not really seeing things from her perspective exactly. about what's best for Glory. And whenever you do that with an antagonist, the antagonist tends to feel a little prismatic. You can't really, you know, understand where they're coming from at any given moment, you know? Mm -hmm. At the Summers house, Buffy is opening birthday presents. Someone indeterminate gives her a French-themed dress, just like the one Giles has at home. Mm -hmm. Dawn gives her a framed picture of the two of them together from a time before there was a Dawn, a time which Buffy nonetheless remembers. Oh my god, this made me cry. I'm <laughs> skating over the first half of this so that we can talk about the second half yes. of this. Let's just say that Stephen S. Knight has many talents. Mm -hmm. He writes a really good Spike. Yeah. He writes a really good Buffy, mm -hmm. and Buffy's a difficult character to get down. By God, this is my least favorite version of Anya. No, and this is the thing. Like, this is absolutely the worst of Anya. This is all of her excesses dialed up to 11 and used for comedic relief when it's really not that funny. But I have to tell you, I don't think it matters what Anya does. I love Emma Caulfield so much. I love the way she plays it. I love the way she commits herself to the she bit, no matter what it is that she's given to do. She does Or commit. how like, humiliating it is for the character of Anya. No, that's Who fair. is smarter and better than any of this. I love Anya so much when she's good. And but even when she's bad, I love Emma Caulfield. Being around people. Yes, this is the I Anya know. who doesn't understand the basic conventions of, of human interaction. Yeah. But... Unlike in previous episodes where that has been acknowledged, yeah. this is the Anya who genuinely seems to be oblivious. Mm -hmm. That, 
I find that enormously frustrating. You're right. It absolutely isn't Emma Caulfield's fault. The fact that Anya is She makes me adore Anya no matter how terribly she's written. Yes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's tough. And Anya is a very difficult character to write, I think. You have to have a very careful and oh, acute Anya sense of who best, she is. Though, Anya at her best, though. When people really write her sure. well, when they give her knowledge and understanding. God, I love that Anya so much. Is there a bigger challenge, though, for the Buffy writer? Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that she, besides potential monsters of the week or, or recurring villains, Anya must be the hardest character to write for. I think she would be really difficult to write for. And the thing is, is that she's really easy to make into a comedy mule. Where she's the one who carries the jokes through the scene and will break her character to do it. And I I really hate the comedy mule pretty much anywhere, even in sitcoms. The comedy mule makes me nuts because they never, the world doesn't apply to them. They're never consistent. They're not fully formed characters. Mm -hmm. And it especially, especially bothers me when they do it with Anya. Because Anya, when she's at her best, when she is well written, is the most amazing. And I I love her. Yeah. Later, Buffy, Joyce, and Giles are talking in the kitchen, but Dawn is beginning to suspect that something is wrong. And when the conversation falters as she returns to the living room, her suspicions are confirmed. Because this is Anya's first time ever talking out loud like a person, she does little to help the situation, and Dawn escapes upstairs and immediately thereafter, out the window into the backyard, which is where she finds Spike smoking and holding, and I love this with my entire being. <laughs> The beaten up box of chocolates, which he previously used to assault the Buffy man. I followed that box of chocolates through the whole scene. And I was like, where are the chocolates? And I absolutely love just following that beaten up box. Spike tries his best to be intimidating, but Dawn sees him more clearly than most. She's en route to the magic box with petty larceny in mind, but there are threats between here and there. And it just wouldn't be right for Spike to let her go alone. I love the Spike Dawn relationship. Uh, Spike and Dawn are one is one of my favorite relationships throughout the run of Buffy, and this is really where it starts. Uh, last week, Buffy brought Dawn and Joyce to uh, Spike's lair, and of course, Joyce started watching Passions, and there was no real interaction with Dawn. And yeah, Dawn and didn't Spike. even get a line, I think, in that. Scene. But man, from this point forward, Dawn and Spike, those are some of my favorite scenes in the whole run because I love the way that he is with her. I love the way he treats her like he's the first person to treat her even though you know he calls her niblet and he's very protective of her but to treat her like a person you know yes or at least to recognize within her something that i think he recognizes within himself Mm -hmm. we'll talk more about this i think in the future but i think that there are issues of identity and potential and the tension between who you are right now and who you see yourself to be, who you believe yourself to be. Mm-hmm. I think there's a connection between Spike and Dawn and occasionally Xander and Dawn that is more profound and is interesting. I think those two relationships are almost the inverse of each other. Yeah. So we'll be tracking those into the future and, of course, through the rest of this episode because at the magic box, Spike struggles to break the lock. Inside, Dawn finds Giles's notebook in a nifty hidden drawer and they settle down together for story time. Spike can't lift the hammer of Olaf the Troll, incidentally, but he can inadvertently trigger a flashback to the crazy people who have yelled at Dawn all season, and then the snake demon from Shadow. He takes the notebook as, forgive the pun, realization dawns. The key was sent to the Slayer for protection in the form of her sister. Oh my god. 
I love this whole thing so much. I love the way it, you know, and again, forgive the pun, dawns on Spike right mm-hmm. as, as Dawn is realizing everything that's happening. Here's a question for you. Okay, I hate flashbacks. I hate them all the time. They always drive me crazy. What do you think about them? Do we need Dawn's flashbacks or can we, could we have just yeah. inferred that those who, who have been watching it? Narratively, no, we don't need the flashbacks. But they for don't the people communicate who come in any additional week, information. People who haven't seen it. But television is a visual a visual medium. Yeah. And I think that the flashbacks communicate an intensity and an immediacy. And when you literally flashback yes. like this, yes. when it is just a, a, a disassociated moment, you know, right. image of something, I think that lends to to the intensity of the scene. I think it adds urgency and import to this revelation. There is a version of the scene without the flashbacks where it's much quieter mm-hmm. it's much more internal yeah that's not the direction that they chose to go in this instance and i can't really fault it for that leaning on flashbacks for narrative mm-hmm. is generally problematic leaning on flashbacks for visual immediacy and for thematic punch too I think that's okay. I think that's a thing that television can do. I mean, you have to be careful because you go too far down that road and you end up in soap opera town very, very quickly. (laughs) But I think that in this instance, yeah, it works. And I like the contrast of these powerful and evocative images Mm -hmm. that seem to belong to a different story. And obviously from Dawn's perspective, do belong to a different story. Right. And the mundanity of Dawn and Spike just sitting together. Yeah, I almost always would say it's going to be stronger without the flashbacks. That Without the flashbacks, you look at Dawn's face when Spike says about like the crazy people or whatever. Um, and you see her reaction and you can intuit that there's something that she's remembering there. At the same time, again, like... They're not egregious. It's just a quick flash. And we are getting very, very deep into Dawn's POV that we are reliving that moment with her. So it's, you know, there's this thing that I like in in television when they make you lean in, when they don't spoon feed everything to you and you have to really intuit, you have to kind of work to understand what's going on. And so like... Like, instinctively, whenever there's a flashback, I almost always hate it. But I'm not sure I'm justified in that in this instance. I see what you're saying. There is a lean-in version that exists Mm -hmm. of this scene that is very quiet and and does require a great deal of attention to be paid. And that attention will be rewarded Mm -hmm. because this is a pivotal moment in Dawn's experience. This is not the lean-in version of the scene. This is the tidal wave lightning storm version of the scene that that rises and overpowers you which i think is okay because that's what dawn is feeling in this moment like we are really so deep in her pov that we're feeling what she's feeling we're seeing what she's seeing and the problem here is that if we didn't have this somewhat exaggerated somewhat hyperbolic Mm -hmm. version of the scene then we'd be left we'd be left floating without a strong anchoring POV because you can't put us in Spike's POV. Right. No, you know, absolutely. Spike's POV is a very different place. <laughs> so we'd be left in a neutral POV without the addition of another character. Right. It would be really difficult. And of course, all of our primary characters have such profound empathy for Dawn that we'd end up just with a diminished version of that original intent anyway. I, I like it. I, I think mm-hmm. it works as it is. That is not what bothers me about this scene. What bothers you about this scene? Giles. Yes. Giles Writing has suddenly started down keeping and not locking it up. A dramatically composed notebook. Yeah. What is the purpose of this journal entry beyond narrative contrivance? Why is he writing like this? 
Who is he writing this Well, for? okay, we do have the Watcher diaries. The Watcher's job is to write everything down, and they okay. have all those diaries throughout And that's a loophole, years. certainly. Yes. The fact that Giles has been recently reinstated as a Watcher yep. could explain this journal. We haven't ever seen him, I believe, write in a journal before. Well, but watching but okay. somebody write in a journal is about the least visually interesting thing you sure. can possibly do on television. Okay, but Unless we also, it has a narrative purpose, but we But we also haven't it. referred to his journals or seen him carrying a journal. Fair enough. As far as we know, this is the first time that Giles has ever written anything mm-hmm. down. And it is, it's not written the way that someone writes a private journal, the way that someone compiles notes. I don't believe that Giles, with all of his his academic insight would write in this expository style. Who is he presenting this information for? If he's presenting this information for the ages and this is his watcher journal, mm-hmm. then I can I can let that pass. But if that is the case, why isn't it with him? Why is it locked up at his business? And not not even in, you know, the training sanctum right. at the back yes. of the building, but just in a hidden drawer under the cash register? Where anybody can see it and find it, especially Dawn. You might yeah. be able to whistle past some of it, but I can't whistle past all of it. The contrivance of Dawn going to uncover Giles' secret diary, even just the uncovering of a secret diary. <laughs> it just, it intrudes into the moment for me. Yeah. I can't completely relax and enjoy the scene, which I do think is genuinely very good, mm-hmm. because I'm aware that this is, it's just so very author but you're not allowed to forget that someone wrote this what's funny is that that's not what bothers me about the diary (laughs) okay what bothers bothers me is how incredibly easy it is for dawn to get her hands on i mean this is information that first of all is pivotal second of all glory could get her hands on at any moment absolutely also bothers me too it's it's not that that glory hasn't been to the magic box yeah you know she doesn't know at least okay i don't think that giles knows that Glory is aware of any connection between the Slayer and the Magic Box. So perhaps he's just not thinking clearly. But you're right. Under any circumstances, mm-hmm. hiding it in a hidden drawer next to the cash register, a hidden drawer which, to the best of my recollection, we will never, ever see the again. The kind or of information that way. could, you know, yes. facilitate the apocalypse. And what yeah. is he doing right now? Mm-hmm. Dawn has escaped from her bedroom. She and Spike have gone off down to the Magic Box. Mm-hmm. Giles is at Buffy's house right now celebrating her birthday party. Mm-hmm. Do you not think that talk is going to turn to glory? Do you not think this is going to turn into a Scooby meeting mm-hmm. of some sort? He should have his notebook mm-hmm. with him, right? The whole yeah. thing. It's such a minor point. But these it minor is, but points It's one of those things, once you start picking at yeah. it, then it starts to bother you. I mean, it honestly has never bothered me before this watching where I was actually taking this like critical look at this scene. Up until then, I was always like, oh, yeah, you know, okay, fine. A minor criticism it of is. a scene which I do think works i, I think like the, the relationship works, between and i think Spike it's and worth the contrivance to get where we need to get here yes though the problem with contrivance is rarely does it work or does it not it's almost always an opportunity to do something better to mm-hmm. do something more interesting this feels like the direct line between point a and point b yeah where a more interesting approach mm-hmm. could have yielded dividends, could have could have really given us something to chew on, something that didn't threaten to throw us out of the story. Yeah. But overall, mm-hmm. what we're really seeing here is Dawn learning the truth and the damage that that does to her own sense of her identity. Mm-hmm. More on that in just a moment. Back home, Buffy tells Willow that Riley didn't send a card for her birthday, and that's when Dawn comes in, holding a knife, blood streaming down her arm. Joyce hugs her tight as she wonders who or what she is. 
And it's pretty heartbreaking. Oh, my God. I know. This is a devastating moment. And I love it. And I have to say, Michelle Trachtenberg is killing it in this episode. We in the Buffy universe have so, like, engaged in this Dawn hate that I never really understood. But now going back to it. Dawn can be a difficult character. Not yet. I think we have not yet reached the nadir of Dawn. Mm -hmm. But we will. Mm -hmm. The problem with Dawn is never Michelle Trachtenberg. Much as the problem with Anya is never Emma Caulfield. (laughs) The character can be poorly written and can be ultimately one note. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a big problem with Dawn later in the show is that we just get constant repetition of a single idea. Mm -hmm. And it's not a particularly engaging idea in the first place. The problem is never Michelle Trachtenberg. I think she's magnificent in this episode. Though I am really, really uncomfortable about our approach to self-harm in this episode. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we treat that as seriously or frame it as carefully as we should. And I think that in part that's because this was 2001. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of progress made over the course of the last 15 years into caring for teenagers who self-harm either well, by cutting or in other ways yeah i mean the the thing self-harm and and cutting and all that kind of thing is is a very like deep psychological issue for a lot of teenagers yes um for a lot of people i mean there are grown people who go through this as well and i think that that is a deeper issue she is not doing this because of a psychological issue she's doing this because of a moment but the or fact that we're not are because using, of an ongoing psychological well issue. yeah because of of a realization about yeah. herself i i actually like the fact that she is curious about her blood that we have this moment with the blood but yeah. the problem is that we're using, you know, a, a butcher knife and we're using a cut on her arm as opposed to some other way of her examining her physical humanity, you know? Yes. Um, and I feel like, I, I like, I feel like we could have done that in a more sensitive, less um, less shocking and horrifying way. Well, a way that is more consistent with the way that we approach problems in right. the Buffyverse. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminded me of Earshot, where we borrow the conventions of a very different kind of story, a very different kind of universe, Mm -hmm. in order to explore something within the Buffyverse. And it doesn't, it isn't entirely resolved. It isn't entirely explored. It isn't entirely presented in a sympathetic real world way. If Dawn had, I mean, one idea that mm-hmm. I had while thinking about this is what if Dawn had turned to Spike? Yeah. What if she had asked Spike to bite her? Mm-hmm. What if, you know, because we already have a pre-existing relationship with blood in the Buffyverse. Sure. If we'd given some of that speech to Spike, mm-hmm. if perhaps Dawn had burst in through the back door of the summer's home with Spike in hot pursuit and Dawn's ranting and screaming mm-hmm. and Spike says that he's not going to bite her if he's really trying to talk her down here. We could have illustrated Dawn's absolute abject, you know, misery and suffering, this incredibly difficult thing that she's facing Mm -hmm. without, I think, necessarily going to this this much more without blunt, invoking something that is so much bigger and so much more important well, and something yeah. that we have no intention at all of, of addressing of thoroughly addressing. exactly i think i can give it something of a pass because you know yeah because 2001 right. is why mm-hmm. that would never fly today if this episode aired today it would air with a a special warning at the end of the yeah. episode or maybe even the beginning of the episode mm-hmm. where sarah michelle gallagher looks into camera and says if you or the people in your life have been troubled by you know yeah. that kind of responsibility i think we're just more aware of that now right and we're more aware of the the power that these 
images and and symbols can have. Yeah, I think that there is a casual appropriation of particular kinds of traumas that would happen much more often before than they will now, you know, yeah. although they still sometimes happen. Um, and I think that, that invoking all of the imagery of the, the child who cuts, yeah. you know, um, without addressing it in, in a broader context more fully yeah. in the long run, Even- I think can be somewhat uh you know irresponsible feels a little bit like a a strong word but it it's just something that if you're going to invoke the imagery if you're going to invoke the trauma then you kind of have to do the rest of it you have to you have to ride out the consequence of that it is a very powerful image and as we've been told with great power comes great responsibility if you're going to invoke that then you need to deal with it you need to deal with the consequences of that and I actually think you don't necessarily need to bring Spike into it. You don't necessarily speak to Buffy's pre-existing relationship with blood, the imagery of blood mm-hmm. in the Buffyverse. Had it not been a knife, had it had not, it not been, been her arm, yes. had she put her fist through a window, How, exactly. we could have done all of And then she had this. that. That yes. would have worked so much better and it wouldn't have, have invoked this particular brand of trauma. It absolutely um, and, uh, and I think that that's something, yes, exactly. With that, if you're going to, and this is something we've talked about a lot over on uh, the Scott and Assassin Act, yeah. discussing Outlander and the, and the use of rape. If you're going to do something, then you have to follow through. You have to show... Everything. There's a reason why we talk about these things in fiction. It is important that we talk about these things in fiction. It is important that is how we, you know, emotionally process so many of the things that happen to us is through our fiction. So as storytellers, you have a responsibility that if you are going to borrow, if you are going to appropriate this this deeply traumatic imagery, mm-hmm. that you need to follow through on that and heal it as well. Yeah. And the more powerful and personal and dangerous mm-hmm. the imagery that you invoke, the more you are obligated to, to deal with the consequence and of that. Even For better, example, if she had slammed her fist through a window, because right. that is something that people will do in a moment of you know frustration or fear or whatever. And that makes more sense that she would come in with a bloodied hand from shoving it through something. Well, arguably, I think I can understand if you divorce it from it, its context. Mm-hmm. I think I can understand why she would cut her arm. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, it's just... But you're borrowing sensitive imagery and you have to be careful about that. Now, we're also borrowing another, you know, common trope Mm -hmm. in this episode, which is the rebellious teenage girl. She explicitly goes to the magic box to steal. Right. Which is about, you know, generally speaking, it is about attention, but Mm -hmm. it's also about identity. It's also about proving that you have power over your environment, power Mm -hmm. over your circumstances, I don't know quite what to make of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're encouraged to skate over it. We're encouraged to whistle past it in the context of the episode itself. We never pay any attention to the fact that Dawn is deliberately stealing from from Giles and her friends. She's not. She says she's going to steal, but she knows exactly what she's there to get. She's there to get Giles' So this is a line just to... This is what she does to to look tough for Spike. She doesn't mean that. I can take that. That's not her intent in this moment. No, I can certainly see that interpretation, but it does feel in the moment as though we are, yeah, leveraging another Mm -hmm. traditional idea about Teenage Rebellion. Later, Willow and the others leave. Giles hesitates, and then we get my least favorite line in the episode where Buffy tells him that it's a family thing, so he should probably jog on. Right. Since when is Giles not family? Yeah. Giles should be there 
arguably more than Joyce. Well, yeah, because he has an understanding and a context for what's happening that Joyce doesn't have. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it really stood out to me. Did it strike you when you were watching it? It didn't, but I can see where you're coming from with it. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm just so attuned to yeah. Giles as as the father figure. Yeah, for Buffy, but also for Dawn too. I mean, right. he's taking a caring role toward Mm -hmm. Dawn and this coming on the heels of the tea making scene at the beginning of the episode Mm -hmm. it just feels like such a slap in the face (laughs) it just no Giles this is a family thing right but Giles handles it really nicely well of course he does because because he's Giles but ultimately Mm -hmm. it does not feel as though we have a particularly well written Giles in this episode yeah Mm -hmm. because that's a line that you could easily have skipped over we didn't need to see Willow and Tara and Giles leaving. Yeah. We could have just assumed that that happened. And we didn't need to address it outright. But Mm -hmm. by addressing it outright, you have bothered me, TV show. (laughs) Because Giles is family to us all. (laughs) Buffy and Joyce tell Dawn the truth, trying to explain the complications of her recent incarnation. It's been six months, apparently, since Dawn appeared. She's having a hard time processing the news and eventually screams at them to get out. Six months. Mm-hmm. Here we are, episode 13. Traditionally, seasons of Buffy occupy the school year. They basically yes. run for around nine months. Mm-hmm. So more or less within, you know, a measurable and understandable margin of error. We are back at the beginning of the season. Yep. We are pretty confident at this point that she appears either immediately prior to Buffy entering her bedroom. Mm-hmm. Or my preferred interpretation immediately prior to Buffy versus Dracula, which is the explanation for why Buffy versus Dracula is so weird. It's so weird, yes. I like that idea a great deal. I like that the <laughs> monks are futzing with the universe during yes. that time, yes. and then she shows up, but there's like this runway up to that where the world is just going to be weird for a couple of That's days. That's when they're defragging the universe. Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> They're watching the little colored blocks move around. See, okay, that here's is something me showing my only ex- somebody. I know. No one defragments a hard drive anymore. I know. But I remember that, though. <laughs> that used to be entertainment that was back in thing. 2000. Sure it was. In the magic box, the Scoobies find evidence of the break-in, and there's only one person in Sunnydale who smokes cigarettes. <laughs> so Buffy kicks down the door of Spike's crypt, knocks him into a sarcophagus, and blames him for revealing the truth. He denies responsibility and turns it back around on her, touching a nerve and causing her to storm out really great spike I in this episode love, just throughout this episode i love this whole scene Aching i love the choreography of the yes. scene it's beautiful when she what? shoves him back in the thing and well, then he first, flips the top yeah we've oh seen him God. sitting on top of the sarcophagus before yeah. using it in terms of its physical dimensionality in terms of the, the physical space that it occupies is so interesting and he's painting so his nails I which i love and then like two of his nails are undone and he's like oh wait they're wet i Love that. That is the kind of detail that gives us so much sense of character, you know, and unnecessary, but beautiful. Couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. In Dawn's room, Joyce tries to calm her down, but blobs of energy don't need an education. And there's a t-shirt idea if you could just write that down. All right, I'm jotting that down right now. (laughs) In the mental ward of Sunnydale General, Ben brings in the next round of medications, but immediately recognizes the crazed Knight of Byzantium. Jinx appears from nowhere and tells him that the knights will come, and it's time for Ben to work with Glory. Ben, though, isn't intimidated. Glory can't touch him. He pushes past Jinx and leaves, which is all very dramatic, but Ben, your job is to give out those medications. (laughs) 
what what do you think is going to happen? I'll tell you what will happen now. Some mm-hmm. nurse is going to have to come in mm-hmm. and pick up after him. Exactly. That's the healthcare system in this country. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good scene. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wish that we had a little more, a little more from Ben. Sure. I just wish there was more depth there. How does he work for you at this point? Ben has never been my favorite thing about season five. Um, I, I kind of, I mean, I like the idea of Ben, um, but he's he's a problematic figure. I don't feel, I feel like he, like Glory, tends to, to shift around a lot into various different roles based on whatever the scene needs of him at the moment. Yes, but, but I don't know what Glory Ben's deal is. the excuse is. of being an insane demon exactly. dimension god. Well, Ben kind of has a little bit of an excuse too, as oh, he but is we the, don't know the that vessel. Yet. Well, we'll find out in a few minutes. And yeah. he doesn't seem to be mercurial as much as he's just so flat. Yeah. And I don't think... I've been watching Ben very carefully Mm -hmm. this time through Buffy because I genuinely don't think it's Charlie Weber's fault. And I feel as though we're letting Mm -hmm. all the actors off the hook in this episode. I don't think it's his fault. Mm -hmm. It's that he's generally given nothing to do besides show up and be present on screen. No, and and be pretty. I mean, that's kind of his thing is that he's he's this pretty guy. And to be immediately reactive, but only to the latest stimulus. Yes. It's like he can Mm -hmm. only remember the last thing that has happened to him and he's going to respond to that as fully as he possibly can. Yeah. That just doesn't work. And when we keep having these recurring beats of him being approached by Mm -hmm. Jinx or by drag... I'm not building to anything here. This is just repetition. My problem with him is that aside from bringing in the Queller demon, Ben doesn't <laughs> do anything. He doesn't yes. take action. He is simply reactive. And I think that that's part of the problem with the character. And I would say anybody who's seen um, How to Get Away with Murder mm-hmm. understands that Charlie Weber does have some acting chops. He can I didn't do some know stuff. That he was in How to Get Away I with Murder. I watched quite a few episodes without Good realizing Lord. it. He looks really different and he is a completely different kind of character and he really does a great job with it. So wow. I, think Char- I think Charlie Weber is doing pretty well. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I don't think he's the problem with Ben. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it's that he's reactive, but he's not allowed to be too reactive because we have to preserve the mystery. Mm-hmm. So he's not being given story. He's effectively being given exposition. Yeah, he's tiny the water little, boy. Tiny little chunks yeah, of exposition exactly. that he has to carry around in those little cups that mm-hmm. he's passing out to the patients in the mental ward. In her room, Dawn clasps her diary. Downstairs, Joyce and Buffy sit in vigil, frustrated at their inability to help her. She was suspended from school earlier in the day and makes her way to the top of the stairs just in time to hear Buffy play-act a little monologue about how unreal she is. See also my discussion about Giles' notebook. Yeah. This is a much more egregious contrivance because Buffy doesn't generally play-act the words of others. Yeah. And she certainly wouldn't now. What is she trying to prove to Joyce by giving us this little... She's not real. She doesn't have feelings, this whole thing. Yeah, it's... What is that? Mm -hmm. So that bothers me a great deal about this. And we come back into it because obviously we know it's a problem. So we have Joyce say, how can you say that? And Buffy says, I'm not saying that. She's (laughs) saying that. I hate that so much. it's It's a little bit clumsy. It's a little bit painful. Yes. Um, and also, I think, unnecessary. I well, think Dawn has already gotten to the point where we would absolutely believe her right. burning all of her diaries, that she well, doesn't thing, need that little extra bit. Yeah, that's really the, mm-hmm. the loophole for me with this. I hate this this false note yeah. from Buffy and Joyce. 
but I love what we get with Dawn mm-hmm. in her bedroom. And it really made me think about <laughs> think about teenage bedrooms, yes. but also bedrooms in general. <laughs> think about personal spaces yeah. in general. The teenage bedroom as an artifact of identity, as a carefully constructed All the stuff artifact the of identity. Yeah. These are the things that define me. Mm-hmm. And Dawn destroying those things, yeah. actively tearing at them, clawing at them, really works for me as as an image, as as a a personal and intense deconstruction of identity. Oh, that yeah. works for Throwing me it all in the yeah. in the bin and setting it all on fire, I think, is such an evocative thing. I mean, it's one of these things that like when you want to let go of something, right? You know, you go out to the back door fire pit and you just throw everything <laughs> sure. in and you have a whole shaman thing. Or you just started on your bed. Or that whatever, you know. I mean, okay, look, she's young. When she's older, in her 40s, and she's had her second divorce, she's going to have this down. <laughs> she's going to know exactly how to do it. So I like that yeah. a lot. It also got me thinking about about identity and ownership this mm-hmm. idea of of houses and and places of residence belonging to a person we've been discussing this a lot yeah. in the context of angel when do the rules of invitation apply and i got thinking about whether or not there is a reciprocal relationship between the occupant of a home and the home itself that mm-hmm. the home takes on the identity of the occupant yeah and that there might be something there I guess what I'm trying to do still is figure out the mechanics of invitation in the angel side of the Buffyverse. <laughs> and that, I fear, yeah. is a lost cause. It may be. So you like the sequence. You are with Dawn. You understand Dawn. You are sympathetic to Dawn. Yeah, I like it. I don't like the um, kind of the hyperbolic teenage screaming of it. I would think I would have liked it a lot more if it had been a quieter but more desperate sort of thing. Um, but then again, when you're 14, you do that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Downstairs, Buffy clarifies that her poorly chosen words did not, in fact, in case you were curious, represent her true position. She and her mother argue about what Dawn needs. When an alarm begins to shriek, Buffy thinks it's glory, which is a weird bit of structural work Yeah, from Willow and Tara yeah. earlier in the episode. I don't entirely know why we had to put all of that attention and focus on that moment so that it could pay off here. Yeah. It feels... It feels imbalanced in a way, and yet I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. More than it paying off in the here and now, I like the idea that the Scoobies are becoming more aware of the stakes, that Mm -hmm. we're actually taking steps to ensure that our our significant places are protected. Yeah, because, I mean, Buffy had to take Joyce and Dawn over to Spike's lair, and they are certainly not going to move into the crypt with Spike, and Spike is not coming into the house with them, so they need to have some kind of something to explain why we're still allowing Dawn and Joyce to live in the house. At the same time, though, if Glory showed up with mischief in mind, I don't think that an alarm would deter her. Probably not. Probably not, but you never know. Turns out, though, that it isn't Glory attacking the Summer's homestead. It is instead the fire alarm reacting to the trash can fire Dawn started in her room moments before she escaped through her bedroom window into the dark Sunnydale night for the second time this episode. And Buffy used to think that she snuck out of the house a lot. Okay, look, somebody has to get rid of the trellis. I'm just saying, (laughs) Joyce, I know it's pretty on the outside of the house, but you have teenage girls, no trellis. Or at least replace it with a ladder. (laughs) Either make it impossible or much, much safer. Exactly. One way or the other. One way or the other. At the Magic Box, the Scoobies have a crisis meeting. Buffy dispatches search parties across town, leaving Joyce at home in case Dawn comes back. Dawn stops by the park just long enough for a flashback, while Xander and Giles search the back alleys of Sunnydale Giles apparently thinks that Dawn might be hiding in a dumpster and Xander says that Dawn has a crush on him 
And these two things are roughly equivalent. This right? is not good Xander, right? I mean, this, this is not good Giles. It's not this good is anybody. Not, I mean, I can see what Xander is saying. This would be cute mm-hmm. if Dawn wasn't a 14-year-old girl and the sister of one of his best friends. And, you know, in serious danger at the moment. And we're worried also, about also her. Also in serious danger. Yes, yes. Like, there are a whole bunch of reasons why this is, why Xander's being flattered about this smacks of a narcissism that I don't think is genuinely who Xander is. Yes. That his concern in the moment where a 14-year-old girl that a god wants to use to start the apocalypse is missing, a 14-year-old girl that he loves and cares for, kind of as a sister. Particularly when this is really the only thing that Xander does in the episode. Right. And his big concern is, and the thing is, especially coming from the guy who is constantly correcting Anya for saying inappropriate things, <laughs> that here, like, as soon as Anya's gone, he's yes. like, well, I gotta make up for it. Yeah. Not great, Xander. What really bothers me about this scene is Giles literally peering into the dumpsters, though. <laughs> as though that's what... He has clearly never met Dawn Summers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This whole sequence, yeah, not great. And again, we have our third mm-hmm. major contrivance of the episode. Buffy dispatches search parties all across town. They all come up empty-handed, conveniently visiting all of our standing sets yes. for Sunnydale, which is mm-hmm. nice to see. We then meet in the graveyard and Buffy decides on a whim to lead everyone to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Buffy is very bad at searching for people. <laughs> is what we've learned in this episode. At the park, while all of this is going on, Buffy tells Spike that he was right all along and that this is all her fault. Spike tries to reassure her, reminding her that Dawn isn't just incarnated mystical energy, but also a pubescent girl, so this was only ever a matter of time. Dawn, meanwhile, follows an ambulance to the hospital, because that's a thing that people do, and slips into the mental ward. The patients immediately begin to react, and Dawn pleads with them to acknowledge her, which the knight does, recognizing her as the key. Dawn questions him, but... Oh, right. The knights don't love the key, do they? It's a pretty good scene. Again, Michelle Trachtenberg doing great work, I think. And I like how smart Dawn is, that she goes and she finds these people who can tell her about who and what she is. If we hadn't had Dawn visits the park and flashes back to her youth with Buffy, and then Dawn sees an ambulance and is reminded that hospitals exist... Right. If we had just had her show Dawn up at the mental ward. Dawn goes straight to the hospital. It would have spoken so much more to her sense exactly. of, of intellect and agency and Purpose. everything. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dawn runs and bumps into Ben, who steals hot chocolate for her, then settles down with her to talk. Ben asks about Joyce, but Dawn tries to tell him the truth. And when he realizes that she's the key, he tells her that she needs to run. He can feel her getting closer. And that's when cute intern doctor nurse Ben transforms into glory herself quite the reveal this is a nice moment i remember in that moment being like no yeah that was pretty awesome it's foreshadowed at all if anything the script goes out of its way to set up a false expectation mere moments before Mm -hmm. when ben starts talking about how difficult it is to have a sister yes and you're like oh my god glory's a sister sister. (laughs) exactly no i love that and the thing is if you but if you go back you know all of the times where he's like she can't touch me she knows she can't touch me yes um that is is wonderfully played out here yes there's a beat that i really appreciate in the episode itself i kind of wish that it had been given more time because Mm -hmm. i think it's much more significant and will be more significant in the episodes to come dawn's inability to remember exactly what happened after the fact yes is really interesting yeah it's not presented as clearly as perhaps it could be 
And I feel that if we'd had Dawn at this point make some kind of observation about, he just changed into you, you're the same person. If we'd had her <laughs> uh-huh. actively express that, mm-hmm. if we'd had her say those things, which she's a 14-year-old girl, she can do that. Yeah. Then I think it would have it would have given the necessary inflection to her line at the end of the episode. Yeah, I actually like it the way that it is. Yeah. I really like it because in this moment, you know, you're experiencing this with Dawn. You're so shocked. You're like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden, Glory is in Dawn's face. Does she know? Does she did she hear everything that happened? Does she know everything that, that Ben knows? This whole thing you're going through. And then at the end, like all this stuff happens and we have this big fight and we have this and this wonderful moment. And then it's just this quiet little, yeah, I don't know what happened to Ben. Like that there's that quiet little moment of her not remembering. And yeah. I absolutely I love the subtle way it's dealt with um, See, the way it I'm is. I'm not sure that it communicates the right intent mm-hmm. at the end of the episode, because I think there are other ways of reading it because the necessary clarification is mm-hmm. lacking. Yeah. I think there are other ways of reading it, including, well, did Glory do something to Dawn? Did is she Dawn unraveling? How does this work? Is sure. Dawn lying to mm-hmm. Buffy about Ben for some reason? Oh, there see, I've never had that. I've ways always of interpreting felt it. that I've always felt that clarity. That there's yeah. some kind of mental whammy that happens that you can't remember what you've seen. I, I actually really like the way that it's done. I feel like it's it's subtlety actually works for it. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's subtlety is worth the potential for misinterpretation. The ambiguity is a bit much. And I feel that, that that's yeah. a really mm-hmm. interesting and crunchy idea. I would prefer it if that that interesting ambiguity was presented clearly. Yeah. If we were given just enough material. And it really is the sake of, of a line. Yeah, no, And I don't enough. know whether it's... And again, this is, I think... Partly because there are some loose edges to the mm-hmm. script, so you feel a little less secure than you otherwise might. I don't know if it was Stephen Estenite's intent to make that as ambiguous as it is, mm-hmm. or if he really meant to communicate the fact that something is awry with Dawn's memory yeah. and failed to do so. Yes, yeah, so, it doesn't feel <laughs> like a failure know, like, to me. Which of those two things yeah. is, is more likely right now? After the commercial break, however, Glory changes out of Ben's scrubs into a slinky silk dress that he presumably keeps in his locker for exactly this occasion. She doesn't remember what Ben and Dawn were discussing, and when she's interrupted by a security guard, she casually breaks his neck and leads Dawn out so they can have a nice, long talk. It is unfortunately a mechanical necessity in this episode Mm -hmm. that we have Glory and Dawn together for such an extended period of time. But for me it does render Glory a little less threatening Mm -hmm. than she really should be. Because she doesn't immediately hurt Dawn? Not necessarily hurt, but immediately threaten to her. It feels as though Dawn is effectively tricking Glory. Uh And I have a problem with that (laughs) in terms of, you know, wanting my antagonists Mm -hmm. to be big bads. Yeah. I just, I feel as though Glory is reduced somewhat in stature mm-hmm. by the events of this episode. Yeah. And this is the episode where more than any other, we need her to be a real legitimate threat. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really a function of having Glory and Dawn together for five full minutes yeah. instead of a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. I think that had those scenes been more compressed, we could have we could have elevated the threat. We could have made Dawn's situation that much more precarious. Mm-hmm. And we could have cut to Buffy's arrival all the sooner, but we have to wait for the contrivance to play out. Yeah. That Buffy just has to mm-hmm. accidentally show up at the hospital yeah. and then be led by the death of the security guard to, to glory. The, yeah. mm-hmm. 
I don't like any of the plot mechanics of of that arc Mm -hmm. in the story. How does that work for you? It works okay for me. I can see what you're saying about there being such a long time where Glory isn't harming Dawn or isn't, you know, threatening to harm Dawn. um, That it does feel a little bit like her power is is underserved in that moment. But Mm -hmm. I actually kind of like the fact that you can't predict when glory is going to completely rip somebody apart and when she's not but there's a kind of unpredictability that is threatening Mm -hmm. and there's a kind of unpredictability that isn't yeah this feels to me and your mileage may vary but this feels to me to be the latter Mm -hmm. and again partly that's just because i'm aware of the contrivance i'm just aware that the plot Mm -hmm. hasn't yet caught up to where glory is Mm -hmm. and if we hadn't been so dependent on buffy being led to glory by the guy casually talking about the yeah. dead security guard. Let's let's breathe through those scenes. Okay. In fact, the Scooby's rendezvous in the graveyard and Buffy, worried about her sister, resolves to go to the hospital. Glory, meanwhile, has Dawn in a lab, demanding to know where the key is. She doesn't know what it looks like, and she doesn't know that it's right here in front of her, but Dawn tries to get information out of her to delay. In reception, Buffy overhears someone talking about the dead security guard and intuits that in a town full of monsters, this must be Glory's doing. Glory, meanwhile, tells Dawn that the key is old and that it isn't necessarily evil. She's losing her tenuous hold on her sanity, and since Dawn doesn't know anything about the key, she might as well refuel herself with Dawn, and that's when Buffy arrives. It's good. It's well acted. I think Glory suffers. I think Glory may suffer a little bit, but I'll tell you who doesn't is Dawn. Yes. I love Dawn fishing for information. Michelle Trachtenberg, in that moment when Glory says, I think that you... Mm-hmm. don't know where my key and like the way <laughs> no, that but... glory is forced to deliver that line is not great but the way that michelle trachtenberg <laughs> releases that breath of relief in them it You're is brilliant and wonderful completely right mm-hmm. strengthening dawn shouldn't necessitate the weakening of glory no fair and enough since glory is our antagonist fair enough i'm now just not as worried about glory as I was previously. And as we Mm -hmm. mentioned, this is when we get into the fight scene. Buffy even manages to get a few good shots in with Spike's assistance before Glory lays Spike out. Giles fires his crossbow. Xander attacks with a crowbar. Glory throws said crowbar at Dawn, but Buffy catches it with her chest, which is not the best way to catch it, perhaps. But based on Glory's strength earlier in the season, that should have left a crowbar-shaped hole in Buffy, like a cartoon. Right. It should have punched right through her and then hit Dawn anyway. Yeah. Glory is just so much less powerful. Uh-huh. In this moment. Than sure. she was previously. Sure. And we've seen this before throughout Buffy. We've had different visions of every single one of the big bads going all the way back to the master. Is the master brooding and threatening and, you know, all Anne Ricey? Well, sometimes. And sometimes he's really funny and pop culture Yes. <laughs> it depends on mm-hmm. the writer. Unfortunately, I think Glory leaves this episode feeling much less threatening than she was previously. Yeah, a little diminished. And I think that when you open with somebody, because the thing is, you always have to leave room to escalate. And when you open with her taking down an entire warehouse by stomping her foot, um, then you know the range of her power. And so instead of escalating and seeing her getting more powerful, which is really what you want to do to ratchet up the tension, we're kind of seeing her, at the very least, pulling her punches and and not taking down the hospital for reasons of why. Yeah, exactly. You know? We're training Buffy, which is good. Mm-hmm. Her her skills are sharpening. Her strength is increasing. All of that is great. But by diminishing glory, we make the core tension just feel less 
urgent. I think so. I think It just so. doesn't feel as bad a situation as it did at the beginning of the episode. And that's an odd choice for the middle of your season. Mm-hmm. Willow and Tara shower glory in glitter finally, then trigger the spell which teleports her, well, away. Turns out to miles above Sunnydale where she falls back to Earth. Yes. Really great. Okay. I know really great. that I'm the one to come in and be like, fighty, fighty, kick, kick, whatever, right? I love this fight scene. I know that Gloria is somewhat diminished by it, but the, the physical choreography of the fight scene, of the way she lays out Spike, of yes. the way she throws the crowbar, the way that Buffy catches it, the fact that, that Tara and Willow are able to, with magical glitter, teleport her somewhere else because that's the only way. You cannot well, beat Glory. We've established that she is that powerful. And just the precision of the choreography, the framing yes. of the specific shots. In a space is that Michael is not Gershman. an easy yeah. fight to do. No. This is a fantastic This fight is an scene. episode directed by a director of photography. Yes. It looks great. The timing, the pacing, mm-hmm. it's all just crisp and precise and clean. I love it a lot. I love the final beat of Willow and Tara teleporting Glory I away. like that it takes a chunk out of Willow. Yep. Won't be doing that again anytime soon because it shows a yes. consequence for doing something that has that much power. Did it bother you? And I must admit, this only bothered me on, I don't know, maybe my sixth viewing mm-hmm. of this episode. Did it bother you that it didn't take a chunk out of Tara? <laughs> well, no, because I think Willow was the one who was, Tara was assisting. Yes, but Willow but was the like one who the did the. But they both did the clap together. I mean, harmony, they obviously you know? used the. Yeah, you know. But I think that Willow's power is is what is fueling most of no, it. No, I think you know? that's. I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely fair. We close the episode at the hospital as the Scoobies gather themselves. Buffy tells Dawn that she is her sister. That their blood is the same. They embrace, and Dawn remembers something about Ben, but not. It turns out everything. Buffy brushes past it and tells her sister that Joyce is waiting at home. They leave together and we fade to black without anyone checking on Spike to make sure that he's okay. (laughs) (laughs) He wakes up four hours later with the Scoobies just gone. But luckily he's in a hospital, so (laughs) there are probably some blood bags lying around somewhere, right? blood bags around that he can snap, yeah. It's a strong thematic ending (laughs) and the use of blood. I think this is the restoration of the blood imagery, the, the blood theme. Yeah that we didn't get earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. I think that this really is consistent with the ideology of Buffy as a TV show. Mm -hmm. I like it a lot. I'm not sure where I come down on blood being the arbiter of who is and is not family. I understand why we're leaning on that within the span of this episode. Mm -hmm. But Buffy is, at some level, at least a show about family that is not bound by blood. Right. A show that Mm -hmm. is the family you choose. Yeah. I'm not sure that the blood bonding we get between Buffy and Dawn is more powerful than Dawn seeing this community, this group of people, Mm -hmm. all of whom rushed into danger to save her, to help her, because they love her. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I don't hate the final resolution. On the other, it doesn't feel like the buffiest final resolution no i understand that and i don't feel like buffy is making a statement that the only family that counts is that which is by blood but i i think that there is an element of dawn trying to fix she has physically existed for only six months what is she she's you know she's going through this whole thing she's a normal girl she's just a girl 
but she's also this energy and like oh, trying to figure out sure. physically what she is. And I think the fact that that her blood is the same as Buffy's, that Buffy is making that connection, that there are these other things that you are. There's this mystical, glowy, green key thing, but that's not who you are to me. That's not what you are to me. You are physical. You are this thing. You are part yeah. of me. I think that that in and of itself is a really good solid note to sure. end this on leaning into the physical yeah. reality of dawn's existence i i absolutely mm-hmm. see where you're coming from i think that's good i might have liked it if we'd somehow found a way of combining both approaches sure mm-hmm. i think maybe the found family mm-hmm. theme in buffy is on my mind a little just because of that earlier of line that shot at giles, where giles yes. just gets sent off no 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 why don't, why don't you just family. go right uh, everybody in here named summers raise your hand oh really really well you should probably leave then <laughs> I don't, yeah, that, that's that's troublesome yeah. to me. But I do love what this episode does for Dawn. Yeah. I love that we get right to the heart of the metaphor for the season. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked before about how Buffy thrives on that strong principle metaphor. And this is interesting because this is the first time that that metaphor hasn't applied to Buffy. Yeah. Buffy is the bystander of the central metaphor for this season because the central metaphor here is adolescence. Mm -hmm. Because I think we all had that moment when we were 13 or 14 and we woke up and suddenly realized that we'd only been in the world for six months. (laughs) That we'd only, there's a great line in Scott Pilgrim versus the world where Knives Chow laments that her boyfriend Scott has been stolen away by the evil American Ramona Flowers. And she says, I've only known that the cool music existed for like six months. (laughs) Right. I love this idea mm-hmm. that Dawn has come into awareness the same way that we all come into awareness, the same way that we all and at about suddenly that start time, to exist. You suddenly start to understand, you know, to be like self-aware and aware of your place in the world, like around that age. I mean, it is truly a coming of age kind of story. And we are seeing this. We saw it through Buffy in the first couple of seasons. And now we're seeing it kind of through Dawn. She's going through this yeah. this process well, as well. Though when we came into Buffy's story, she already had a very strong sense of who she was. Of identity, Turned out her that place it was an in the world. Identity. Yes. Mm-hmm. But she already had a sense of 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 what a Buffy Summers is. Yes. Dawn is Dawn is going through the earlier part of that story. And mm-hmm. I do think that that's a universally applicable yeah. metaphor. I think that part of the problem with Dawn's story is that we identify with Buffy, we've matured alongside Buffy, and now Dawn's story, Dawn's experience, Dawn's reality just seems so terribly adolescent. Yeah. But I think that if you are 14, Mm -hmm. I think you could absolutely react to Dawn's experience of feeling that you've just arrived in the world. Right. And nothing is what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. That, to me... Is, is really interesting. And we're going to look more carefully at how that concludes at the end of the season. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to look ahead to. So what do we think of this episode in aggregate? How does it work <laughs> for you? I feel like I've been very critical and very nitpicky, mm-hmm. but there really are a lot of frayed edges here. A lot of my problems with the script would be resolved if they just hadn't, if they just right. stopped, just you don't need to replace just the scene with Giles. A few things. Just cut the scene with Giles. Right. You don't need to improve Anya's jokes. Just cut them. Cut Dawn to... hearing Buffy in exactly. the hallway. Oh my God, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And we don't even necessarily need the explanation for how Buffy ends up at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Just cut it. Because of course she's looking for her sister. That's where There's she's going to end up. Real inclination yeah. to over-explain everything in the script, and that is a very common trope 
for writers first stepping into yeah into that role absolutely because it it just doesn't feel like we're trusting our audience enough again like dawn when she leaves if the next time we see her she's at the hospital instead of getting her wandering aimlessly through town and then being reminded by an ambulance that oh hospitals exist she visits the park yes where we get the flashback to her and buffy on the swings yeah but not the same park which i do appreciate i do like at least there's that clearly not the same park Mm -hmm. because they didn't live in sunnydale when they were that that old yeah so Mm -hmm. i like that but that just makes it internally I don't unnecessary. Care for that. Like, and again, it's me and flashbacks. You know, I no, hate no, no. that. But I like yeah. the fact, I like singularly the fact that it's not the same part. That it's not the same part. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, at least there's that. Because right. I would have been driven crazy by the fact by that, the it was, timeline issues that it was the that. same part. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I do like that we're paying close enough attention to do that, mm-hmm. but it's just not necessary. Yeah. The fact that there are so many of these easily removable beats mm-hmm. through the course of the episode and the fact that some of our big important scenes feel maybe just a little rushed mm-hmm. it would have been nice if we just just tightened it up and just, just a just little bit given it another draft yeah. i think there's there is greatness present within the script and there's nothing i think terribly bad in the script i think this is a good solid consistent episode of buffy but i don't think it's great it is a very good episode of buffy it is not one of the exceptional episodes of buffy um but the era like we said is getting real thin at the top of that list anyway so well let's talk a little about the list when you look at our big list of every buffy episode ever where do you start looking for an episode like blood ties well i mean it's not a top 10 i think we can say pretty much without even looking the bottom of the top 10 right now is becoming part one and part two so if you're not as good as close your eyes (laughs) then you're probably not going to break the top 10 at this point very very true i think that when we get into sort of the um kind of the middle of the 10 to 20 you know, um, yeah. I, I would kind of see it because we look at uh, number 11 is the harsh light of day, um, which was early in season four when Spike appeared back in Sunnydale. Um, number 12 is a new man. Another birthday episode for Buffy uh, where uh, Giles becomes the, the feral demon. And yeah. then we have Doppelgangland, which was uh, where where Evil Willow comes back in season three. But I generally think of 10 to 20 as being the potentially brilliant, but but somewhat flawed. It's the JV team. It's the yes. second string, right? Yes, but with the understanding that <laughs> mm-hmm. the JV team has greatness There's great within it, has potential, has potential yeah, greatness absolutely. within it. Mm-hmm. When I think about this episode, the first time I watched it, I was I was satisfied. I thought it was a solid piece of work. And I was looking maybe 16, maybe 17 yeah. on the list, thinking about it more carefully, thinking about the fact that it doesn't really contain that much more potential than it actually exercises. Mm-hmm. For me, the most obvious and striking point of comparison is our previous Dawn episode, Real Me, which went in at 25 on the list. Still, by the way, in very good company, right above Real Me is the Zeppo. So there are a lot of episodes (laughs) that we like down there. I do think this is better than Real Me, but I don't necessarily think it's much better than Real Me. I think it is. I think it actually deserves to be pretty, like, much higher on the list for me. And when we're looking at the middle of, like, the 10 to 20 range, uh, at 15 is I Only Have Eyes for You. I don't think it's better than that. No. At 16 is Bad Girls. I don't think it's better than that. No. At 17 is Amends. This is where I start to think Amends, I know, is much higher on our finished list than it is on your personal list. (laughs) I think when I think of the potential for greatness. Yes. I think of Amanda. I know you Now, Amanda does not realize that greatness mm-hmm. as fully as perhaps it could. But I think that if you look at the best possible version of Amanda's versus the best possible version of Blood Ties, Amanda's is a clearly 
superior episode at a conceptual level. I think that Blood Ties does what it does very well. And again, no one is saying that this is a bad episode. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe a little high. I could compromise down to the replacement. I could comp- compromise down to Restless at 19. Maybe between Restless and Out of My Mind right there at 20 on the list. Uh, that still feels a little low for you? Yeah, that's a little low for me. I think it's better than Restless. Of course, I hate Restless. <laughs> Again, we're seeing, yes, this is the real intersection <laughs> of my taste in Buffy and your taste in Buffy. Okay. We've made a lot of compromises splitting, on this list. Splitting a man's and Restless, we have The Replacement. The Replacement, a high concept. It's a good episode. style yes. episode, but... When all is said and done, a fairly mundane and a season five episode. So Mm -hmm. we're more apt to compare like to like there. Do you think Blood Ties, with its focus on the season arc, with its focus on close characterization, exceeds the kind of high profile gimmickry (laughs) of the replacement? Actually, I was called out. I will say this. I was called out, I believe, by the wonderful Caleb on Twitter. Uh Uh-huh who took me to task for describing Once More with Feeling as a gimmick episode. I just want to say, gimmick for me yeah. is not a it's bad not word. It's not a slam. It's absolutely not. It it's means, not an insult. It means a very, very strong but unusual concept yes, episode. That's it. It rests yes. entirely upon the concept. That's the concept is you the You will big not thing. find a bigger mm-hmm. fan of Once More with Feeling oh, trust than me. I am. Trust me, Caleb. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You know I love me a bizarre world. Sure. And if you give me a decent frame for a bizarre world to explain why things are so bizarre, Which we pretty I much get in the replacement. It. For the most part, sure. yes. No, absolutely we get it in the replacement. Um, I, but I love it, but I don't think that it has – I mean, first of all – we have a debut writer, which I think he has done tremendously well, considering this is his first episode, his first foray into Buffy. Um, I think that this episode, given all of the season arc stuff that it has to do, all of that water that it has to carry through to the next stage, I think has been really, really good. I, d- I think it did that really, really well. We have a couple of minor falters, again, all of which could have been done by taking stuff out. The stuff that's there is really pretty good. He writes really well he writes spike really well i think there's a lot of stuff in here to absolutely love and it is not an easy episode to take on or to write so i think that it's i honestly think that it's better than amends um uh, but i would be happy to compromise and put it at 18 on the list below amends uh but above the replacement but above the replacement yeah we put wow, it above I'm the surprised replacement yeah, we I have say, a lot more heavy lifting to do we should say that this is steven astonite's first mm-hmm. buffy script right. it's not his first published script prior to this episode of buffy he had written around 20 episodes of a show called undressed okay but this was the first non undressed episode of mm-hmm. anything that he had written i do think that we can give a little credit to a debut uh, a debut writer. I do think that this is a decent script. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to put it in okay. there with no ill feeling whatsoever. I think it's it's a strong piece of work. I think there are great moments in it. I do feel it's a little contrived. I do feel you can see the scaffolding mm-hmm. a little bit. I feel like a pass from not even necessarily a a better writer, yeah. just a more confident writer, mm-hmm. just a more experienced Buffy writer. Yeah. Another draft of the script would have turned it into a stronger episode, but even then, I'm not sure how much untapped, unrealized potential there is in this story. No, as it this stands. is a high level of critique because there really isn't a lot wrong with this episode. A couple really of minor isn't. things that might have been stronger if we had trusted the audience a little bit more. But aside from that, 
So let's put it in there right below a man's right above the replacement. And that'll do it for today. We'll be back on Thursday with our thoughts on episode 13 of season two of Angel. Happy anniversary in which Angel and Lorne team up to prevent a lovesick scientist from accidentally ending the world. And who hasn't almost ended the world? Right? It's always something, isn't it? I know. It? I gotta tell you. Then next Monday, Spike's feelings for Buffy are gonna come out in the open in episode 14 of season 5 of Buffy Crush. The return of a familiar face to I Sunnydale know, a familiar next week. crazy face. Buffy. Don't forget, you can join some of the funniest, smartest, most insightful people on the entire internet over on our forums at forum.storywonk.com. Or send your feedback to us via email at podcast at storywonk.com or leave a voice Mail at 252-505-WONK. That's 252-505-9665. And remember, this podcast is brought to you free and ad-free by our generous patrons to join this awesome group and to gain access to exclusive StoryWonk content. Go to patreon.com slash StoryWonk and pledge us a dollar a month or whatever you can afford. We're going to jump into a very brief spoiler zone right after the music. But until next time, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted. So a couple of very brief points for those yes. of you keeping track at home. We're right in the middle of the season now, and we're really building some of the some of the text that we're going to refer to mm-hmm. in this season's closing moments. We have the tiny beat of Spike trying to lift Olaf's hammer. Yes, which is really nice. And failing, which <laughs> is apparently that hammer has increased in weight or I, in I guess, mass yeah. since added to the Magic Shop's collection. <laughs> it's quite fun. That, of course, is going to be vital at the very end of the season. But yeah. much more importantly... We're kind of foreshadowing the next personal arc that's mm-hmm. going to take us through to the end of the season, which is Tara. Yeah. In the opening, we have Tara being very, very disturbed at Gloria's ability to kind of suck the sanity out of people. Yes. Um, and she is, we have two beats of her being really, really horrified by the very thought. And when you know what's going to happen with Tara... That becomes really upsetting. And it's clear that the Buffy writers knew what was going oh, to yeah. happen because that is way too personal Direct, and uh, intense. Foreshadow, a yeah. mm-hmm. It's a very genuinely upsetting story yeah. arc. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a story arc that ultimately I find myself disliking, not because it's poorly done, mm-hmm. but just because I find it so difficult. Yeah. There are very few things in Buffy that I find so personally distasteful that I just, I can't with Mm -hmm. them. I can't appreciate them. And Tara really is one of them. I'm going to be looking at that very closely this time Mm -hmm. as we move through Buffy, because we've talked about the problems we've seen in Tara's characterization, that she has been presented so often now as a damsel in distress. Yeah, I'm not sure how well that entire storyline is going to work for me this time through. Uh, yeah, I don't like the way that we are constantly damseling Tara. Um, it's been a little while. It has been a little fairness. while, and we've seen her, as we saw her in Triangle, being active, sure. you know, and we do see more more active, like, you know, agency from mm-hmm. Tara in the future, you know, going forward. It's this one part where it just feels like, okay, enough. We all love Tara and putting her constantly in danger and having her be the, the victim again yeah. feels a little tough for me, especially when we have such a difficult situation where somebody's 
somebody's mind, somebody's personality is yeah. kind of taken away from them. I mean, that's that's a horrible, brutal thing to have happen. And to watch that happen to Tara is really, really uncomfortable. That said, I think it's a very effective and affecting storyline. So I don't like the fact that it happens to Tara that because of this history of Tara being constantly damseled. Yeah. But I do like the the way that they present it and how, how difficult it is to deal with that. It does feel a little as though she's the obvious choice. It does. It does feel a little as though that story could be more interesting, more... I don't know, unexpected, at least, if it was literally any other member of our core If it cast. was Xander and Anya was called upon if to it was be Xander the caretaker. If it was Xander and Anya was called upon, or yeah. if it was Anya. Yeah. I mean, that would allow us to rewrite Except a lot of Anya's character. I don't think people care as much about Anya as they no, do about... I think that's about, a powerful means of, of creating that I kind of I think giving Anya an opportunity to do something in that support role to be also, exceptional, especially considering the way sure, no, that, that Willow an and Anya have had this conflict over Xander and how to care for Xander. Sure. To see Anya stepping up and being even more human. Yeah, you know, because yeah. of the love that she has for Xander. And also the fact that, you know, and yeah, I don't want to, you know, I'm sorry to genderize this whole thing again. But, you know, let's have it happen to a man this time. Let's damsel a man well, for have, once, you know. We have damseled Xander before. Uh, Xander has been used as, as the bait. Yeah. Uh, as the fulcrum around which the plot turns. Xander would have been more interesting. I mean, I'm looking at Anya right now and thinking, yes, what Anya needs in order to work in Buffy mm-hmm. is... A rewrite. You have she to apply pressure to that character and give and her think, something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If we had gone down that path, it would have allowed us to come out the other side with a new and refreshed and more focused version of Anya. We right, but we would have lost both our comedy mules in one swoop. Well, so we could I have, that... you know, preserved to a certain extent. We could have preserved what the writers obviously like yeah. about Anya. Yeah. But we could just have made her more focused. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, it's going to be it's yeah. going to be Tara. It's going yeah. to be incredibly hard. It's going mm-hmm. to be heartbreaking to watch. I'm interested in my response to that as we move through it this time. Yeah, it's it's tough to watch. I don't like that we damsel Tara, but I have to say, like, I think that the movements of that storyline itself really well done. Yeah. Tara as victim yeah. is a difficult idea not least of all because she is in a sense the most publicly diverse yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. member of our cast certainly we already had a pre-existing relationship with willow tara is introduced as someone who exists slightly outside of our mm-hmm. core group that's a strong addition to the cast i really love tara in, yeah. in this show as we know i'm i'm not sure where i'm going to come down on that Watching it again analytically and really tracking Tara's mm-hmm. progress through the show, I'm going to be interested to see how that works for me this time yeah. around and how it works for you too. It's always been uncomfortable, and I've always been like, it makes me incredibly sad yeah. to watch. But I think it's and a of really course, good. I'm thinking not just line. about season yeah. five, but also season six. I'm thinking about the inevitable end of Tara's storylines. Yeah. I'm thinking about everything that we Although do with I love this character. Tara in season six more than I love Tara anywhere put else. Put into the show yeah. to suffer. Not yeah, really. no, really. It is terrible. We'll see how that but works then again, out. I mean, fiction is about, you know, making everybody suffer as much as possible. So I guess there is that too. And I guess, of course, we also have in this episode with the Ben Glory reveal, mm-hmm. we have the first suggestion that the solution to the glory problem is not going to be as neat and tidy yep. as the solution to many other 
antagonistic and i absolutely love the way we resolve that in the end that's going to be really we are going to have a very long talk about giles at the end of the season oh we certainly a very are long talk oh because that may be the moment that defines the arc that we see from giles through yeah. the rest of the show oh absolutely we'll see how that works out lots to discuss in the weeks to come here on dusted we'll be back with you on thursday with angel until then take care Grr, arg. <laughs>